come before you this morning and we proclaim that you are worthy. And every man and woman and boy and girl that believes in you and calls you king, we bow the knee to you now in submission. And we say that you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power and might because you are redeeming for yourself a people from every tribe and nation, from every ethnicity. You desire that they would come home and eat at the table of your Father and you will win them and you are winning them and you will return one day again on a white horse and you will finish the work that you have started and we will live forever with you in a new creation. And it'll be absolutely glorious to see millions of people and then for the crowd to split and for you to walk and everyone will fall to a knee and say he's worthy. He's worthy. Because it's because of you. And so help us now. Jesus, send the spirit that we've sung about to open our eyes and to see you and to hear you to listen to you tell us about your Father. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Would you open your Bibles with me to Luke 15. Luke 15. We're a little between series, kind of. We just have been in a series called A Church Where Anyone Can Grow. And we're headed next Sunday into Holy Week, Palm Sunday, and into a series called Risen. And I had intended to preach Psalm 32 this morning, and the Holy Spirit thought differently of my idea And so we are in Luke 15, and we are, well, in one sense, we're really continuing the series that we've been in. I'd like you to imagine a dinner party. Guests are arriving into the home, taking note of all the different kinds of people that showed up. Have you ever been at a large dinner party? See people from different walks of life, different levels of society, maybe? And sometimes in a dinner party like that, the usual jockeying for position settles in, as can often happen. People are getting a sense for who's who, who they want to be by, especially maybe those that are a bit more important. But this dinner party is unlike any other, because at this dinner party, God shows up. As Jesus makes his way into the main room and takes his place at the table, he immediately notes a sharp contrast. On his left are men and women from varied walks of life, tax collectors, publicans, hookers, common laborers, hired servants, the crippled, the blind, the lame, a few slaves, 
all on his left. They're a pretty raggedy, notorious bunch, but they have come eager. Their faces are bright and expectant. They're looking at him in a way that is trying not to be obvious, but is anything but. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed that before? Maybe you've been that person before. On his right is a very different group of people, Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, and they're murmuring among themselves and not being too quiet about it either. And from what he picks up in his ears, Jesus, and from what he can see in their hearts, because he's Jesus after all, he sees a harshness there. Condemnation. Grumbling. Complaining. He leans back and casts his eyes heavenward and he lets out a deep sigh. Because before him he sees on his left and his right so, so much need. And his heart is broken for both groups of people because each of them is lost and hurting in their own way and neither of them You see, neither of them understands the Father the way that they should understand the Father, his Father, who he knows so intimately, right? They were one before he was sent to the earth. Perfect harmony, perfect fellowship. He knows his Father. And his father is one who has a table just like the one he is sitting at and a home just like the home that he is dwelling in. And his father welcomes everybody to simply come to his home and enjoy his presence and to live in fullness of joy. And neither of these groups of people, the one on his left and the one on his right, fully understand that. So he clears his throat to get everybody's attention. Settles in his seat and opens his mouth. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders in its weariness and terror, and fright at being all alone. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have strayed away. You know, people in this time, maybe not altogether differently than this time, loved stories. They, they knew and were used to the fact that it was an effective tool in the arsenal of a teacher, and he's got their attention now. He can see it. 
They're already wondering what he's on about, already trying to figure out the characters and what this story is going to mean. Jesus continues, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors, (laughs) the whole community, and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lot. I found 10% of my possessions. My one lost coin. And in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. <laughs> Some of them getting an inkling now of where he's going, but not fully clear yet which is to be expected because, you see, these are just preludes to what Jesus really wants to get to, his main, the the, the heart of his teaching. There are supportive vignettes to the main attraction where Jesus aims, where Jesus aims to reveal the heart of his father to these two very different groups of people before him two different groups that are displaying, okay, remember this, two different kinds of lostness. And he's going to do it with the story of an earthly father and two sons. So as you're listening to this story, what I hope will happen is you'll be absolutely immersed in this story, but that you'll also be remembering that Jesus is telling the story to these two groups of people. We've got to hold all that in our heads, okay? Because this is a story of a father, I believe, who looks reckless with his grace and love and forgiveness. This is the story of a father who opens his arms wide for a son lost, okay, listen to this, in immorality and disobedience, and a son also lost in his morality and obedience. A son lost in immorality and disobedience and a son lost in morality and obedience. And most importantly, it is the story of a father who is shamed by both of those sons because neither of the sons want the father for who he is but what he can do for them. Luke 15, 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons. Now it bears reminding that back then how an inheritance would work. Namely, it would be shared among the father's sons. And two-thirds of the estate would go to the eldest son, and the remaining third would be split among the remaining siblings at the death of a father. And so in this moment, we see the son revealing his heart towards his father. He doesn't want to wait for his father to die. He wants what he wants now. He's not interested in what impact that has on the father. He just wants his money. And it's shocking. And it's sad. And my heart hurts for both of them, for the father and the son. And I want the father not to do it. I want the father to say, are you kidding me? Do 
do you even love me? Do you, do you understand what you're saying about me? But he doesn't say that. He tears his life apart. He divests himself of all of his property so that he can hand his son a lump of cash. A few days later, verse 13, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his field, a Jew, to feed pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. It didn't take long for this younger son to get the cash in his hand and leave everything that he had known. Family, father, friends, farm. To find all that he thought that his heart was looking for. And then it was all gone so quickly. And he wasn't prepared for things to go really south in a place where no one cared for him, in a place where he was all alone, in a place where he was lost. Lost in his immorality and disobedience, lost with his life in peril. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. So I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So please take me in as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. So his plan to slave and serve for the father as a way to get home. And he's thinking, okay, that, that'll balance the scales. That will make up for all the wrong that I've done. The way I've hurt my father, despised my father, shamed my father, rejected my father. I know what I'll do. I'll earn my way back. That's what I'll do. I'll earn it. I don't deserve to be a son. It's all right, but he's good. Even his servants eat well. So I'll just be a servant, slave. Why? Because he's no longer worthy. Or so he thinks. Can you imagine what those tax collectors and hookers and common laborers and hired servants and a few slaves are thinking right now at this moment in the story? I know what that's like. I know what it's like to make a series of really bad decisions. I know what it's like to have completely messed up and screwed up my life. I know what it's like to feel unworthy, to be unworthy with no hope of being deeply loved and cared for and accepted again. I know what it's like to have done things I'm deeply ashamed of, things that I've participated in, wicked 
wicked things that prove that I don't deserve back in. (laughs) That I don't deserve happiness and kindness and love and forgiveness because I've gone too far too many times. I know how this story is going to end and it is not going to end well. Why is Jesus telling this story? I wonder if they're thinking that. Why? I thought he was different. He continues. Verse 20. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I imagine because I don't live in the ancient Near East, so I kind of imagine it in my own time frame. We've always wanted a house with like one of those big wraparound porches. And I imagine every night after dinner, the father getting his cup of coffee, getting into a rocking chair on that big wraparound porch and looking down that long driveway and just hoping tonight is the night he comes home. So when he sees them, what do you think the response would be? He's filled with love and compassion and he runs to his son and he embraces him in a big bear hug and he just showers him with kisses. And I mean, can you imagine what the group on the left of Jesus is thinking in this moment? This is so unexpected. The father doesn't in this moment expect the son to prove that he's worthy of the hug and the embrace and the kisses. He doesn't require some proof of repentance and that's why you're back. Doesn't stand with his arms folded and aloofness, afar off, stiff-arming his son. He completely envelops him in love. I'm sure that there are parents here who have children who've gone astray. And whether or not you know all the details of where they are and what they're doing, you know that it isn't good. They've abandoned family and friends and the faith. Everything they've known, maybe everything that you poured into them, everything that you together once held dear, And they've done that thinking they're finding there's something only to become lost. And you think about them every single day. And you pray for them and you hope for them and you grieve for them and you still love them and you long for them to come home to just sit at your dinner table and talk with them and you want it to be, you want it all to be the way that it was before. And Jesus is trying to show us what it should look like when a lost child or maybe any other, just kind of insert any other relationship that maybe has become severed. Jesus is trying to show us what it should look like when reunion happens. No questioning of motives, 
No proof offered. Welcome. Love. Compassion. Look what happens when the son tries to stick with his plan. (laughs) You're messing up my plan, dad. With all these hugs. Give me a second. (laughs) Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And the father will have nothing of it. It caused me to think this week of Isaiah in the way that the father acts with Israel, who's so often wayward, where he says in Isaiah 65, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I'm going to move. <laughs> so this is no surprise if you know your Old Testament that Jesus would cause the father to look this way. But his father said to the servants, verse 22, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on my son. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. And so what began? A party. Oh man, Christians just got to learn how to party better. I'm I'm just telling you. Three times in this chapter it talks about parties, I'm just saying. Can you imagine the left side of the room? I have to think that all of the tax collectors and the hookers and the hired servants, and they're just like, yes! Yes, yes, yes! Party for us! The Father! Do you think he's talking about God? I think he's talking about God. I think he's talking about Yahweh. We could be back in. Hope for wayward sons and daughters who through bad choices of their own were lost and alienated from God, but now see that he is a father who like a shepherd searching for and finding one last sheep and a woman searching for and finding one lost coin celebrates with great joy when a sinner wants to come home. Oh man, this is good. This is good, Jesus. Because it says that our God throws parties are you are you picking this up our God makes sinners the honored guests of parties (sighs) they had to cheer I'm just saying what do you think's happening on the right side of the room Uh Uh-oh. I wonder if there wasn't an equal explosion of complaints and scoffing. Wait a minute. (laughs) Okay. Wait a minute. This is ridiculous. Like, okay, we see what you're doing, Jesus. We see what you're doing. And you're not even, like, you're not even a trained teacher of the law and its requirements. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are suggesting that God would have any of this. 
And I can imagine Jesus in the middle of this room that's exploding before him, quieting all the happy, loud, celebrating sinners with a wave of his hand. And what? See, I grew up so, so much thinking that this story was that Jesus in this moment looked with rage at Pharisees and teachers of the law. But I think I got that wrong because I don't think that's who Jesus is. I think Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And I think he looks at this side of the room into angry, cold, not understanding his father, eyeballs. And with eyes of love and compassion, he looks into those eyes and says, meanwhile, everybody's quiet, quiet down. Story's not done. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Now, can you imagine in this story, okay, we're back in the story now. Can you imagine how excited the servant is? Because he knows that his master has been on that porch looking for that son and the son has come home and a party is happening and now the older brother is coming out of the field and going, what's going on? And it's like, I get to tell the news. His brother, your brother is back and your father has killed the fattened calf and we are celebrating because of his safe return, man. Like, isn't that awesome? And the older brother was angry and would not go in. Now, Jesus doesn't say it, but can you imagine the shocked face of the servant? And so that maybe he goes back into the house and shares his confusion with, you know, goes over to the side of the party. And, and in this day, like, it's a really big deal that the master of the house is hosting a party, right? Like, it's a really important role. So the servant kind of just shimmies over and is like, hey, uh, the older brother's out back, and he's, like, really ticked. And now this father, who at great expense to himself in a very public setting, throwing a party for the entire community, having taken on the disgrace of a returned disreputable son and accepting him back immediately into full rights of sonship with joy, now needs to pursue the other son. And so he came out, verse 28, and he begged him. Begged him to come in to the party. But his older son replied, all these years. Can you just imagine him just like gritting his teeth, just spitting these words? All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. And yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money with prostitutes, you celebrate? By killing the fattened calf? In other words, that's not fair. There's no justice in this. He should have to pay for his wickedness, Dad. How can you just dismiss what he's done? 
And, and on top of that, look how I've slaved for you. Look at everything that I have done for you. The son of yours didn't care about you at all. He wrongly demanded money from you before you even died, and you gave it to him. He wrongly abandoned our family and farm, and you let him. He wrongly rejected his faith, and now you receive him. He gave his life for immorality and disobedience, and you celebrate him? <gasps> and in his condemnation of his brother, he is betraying that he too is utterly, utterly lost. You see, he has not actually been faithful, even though on the outside, right, on the outside, it appears he has. That's what he's doing. He's giving you everything on the outside, and while he's doing that, while he's arguing, he's showing us his heart, what's in here. Because all of his obedience and works, all of his supposed morality and conformity wasn't it was not because he cared a whit about his father. He was just doing it to get something from his father. He wasn't any different in that way than the younger son. He just wants his money. He just wants his stuff from his father. And so he's slaving away for it. And he is absolutely blind to his lostness as he argues his righteousness. He feels justified in his morality, in obedience. He feels so right. And I think in this way that Jesus is probably trying to show us that this is actually the more dangerous lostness. Because he doesn't even see it. The people on the left side of the room, they know they're not worthy. And the people on the right absolutely think they are. Just like this son, friends, we can actually be alienated from God by our morality and obedience. We can actually be alienated from him. And I want to be really, really careful here because I can imagine some of you objecting in this moment, right? Like, wait a second, <laughs> time out. I thought morality is good. I thought obedience is, is good. Like, those are good things, right? And they are. So don't hear me wrong. They are. But why are they good things? Because that's what grace, love, and forgiveness is owed. And so we slave away to, to provide our morality and obedience to kind of prove the grace, to kind of prove that we're worthy. You see, that, I think Jesus is trying to help us see, that doesn't honor the Father. That's not what the Father wants. The grace, love, and forgiveness that has been freely offered by the Father and lavished upon us as sinners instead produces in us such a deep love for the Father that we can't help ourselves. Like a, like a child that that loves its parents who have already been just doting and lavishly loving on them, right? They just, they just want to make their parents happy. Why? Because, 
because they're their parents. I mean, until they're teenagers, but because they love them. And it's, you see, friends, what, what the Father wants is our obedience that is an overflow of our love for who he is. That's, that's all. That's healthy. That's right. It's what Jesus, it's, it's why he's telling this story. Because he sees in the Pharisees and the teachers that kind of lostness. They've, they've misunderstood the Father. And not only for themselves, right? Because for them, it's all about morality and obedience. They've misunderstood the Father's reaction to, you know, sinners who they think are sinners, even though they've got their own kind of sin. Like they're grumbling about these sinners being freely let in. They have forgotten Jeremiah 31 that Seth read for us. Is not Israel still my son? Is not Israel still my son, my darling child? Don't you love the language of the Bible and how he talks about us? Sometimes we get embarrassed maybe, but that's how he's talking about us. Darling children. I often have to punish him, but I still love him. I long for him and surely will have mercy on him. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, mark well the path by which you came. He wants you to find your way home. That's what that's about, right? Come back again, my virgin Israel. Return, return. How long will you wander, my wayward daughter? For the Lord will cause something new to happen. And Jesus knows his father feels that way about people lost in their immorality and disobedience and their morality and obedience. He wants them all to come to his table. Which is why he pictures his father pleading. Do you see that? I hope you're, you're seeing that right now, that the father in the story is Father God. And that that father, it almost seems irreverent. It almost seems scandalous. almost seems reckless that he would plead. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Do you see, he's saying, of course, all that I have has been yours. It always was. You didn't have to slave for it or work for it. It was free. You could have taken the calf at any time that you wanted because it was yours by grace. You could have had a party at any time because you are my dear son. Please do not in this very moment when we can all be together again as a family, run away like your brother did and refuse to come in. Come home. Come to the table. Enter the feast, please. This table, see, it's not accidental that he gave us a table. This table is a vivid reminder of the almost reckless looking love of our Heavenly Father. 
seeking to make a family. That's what this table is about. <laughs> don't, don't forget that. This, this is God making sons and daughters and saying, you're my family and you belong to each other. And this story leaves us with kind of a cliffhanger, doesn't it? Did he go in? I wonder. Did he repent of his anger and his works? One of my favorite little poems is Lay Your Deadly Doing Down, Down at Jesus' Feet. Rest in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. That's what that's what he wanted this older brother. It's what he wants for you if you're... You see, this story confronts us. How will we respond to this God, this Father of love? The story, each of the stories had repentance in it, right? Someone who repents. And that's what we're all confronted with. We're all, really, all of us a younger brother or an older brother, we all really fall into one of these categories. Maybe a little bit of a mix sometimes between. Maybe you've been on one path or the other at a given time in your life, but I, I'm an older brother. I am securely in that position. I have lived a lifelong trying to prove myself worthy of his grace. And this story confronts me that it's free. You may be a younger brother, daughter, here. You may think that you are somehow beyond the reach of his grace. If he just knew what you had done, even yesterday, you wouldn't offer me that cup and that bread. I'm not worthy. And this story from Jesus confronts us with his father and who he is. Some of us are going to have to repent of those wicked things that we have done and some of us are going to have to repent of all the good things that we've done because they don't save us. And what this table reminds us is the glorious reality that we don't even have to depend on ourselves for either of those things. You know, isn't it interesting? Did you notice this in the third story that no one goes looking? The first story, it's a shepherd going after the sheep, right? The second story, it's a woman going after a coin. In the third story, no one goes looking. Now, I don't know, but maybe that's because Jesus wants us to see him as the greatest older brother ever. That if he had been there, he would have been far better than this older brother who wasn't a good older brother because that's what good older brothers do when their younger brother or sister goes off and being all crazy. They track them down and they try and bring them home, right? And isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't he leave his home to track us down? Jesus was stripped of his robe so that we could wear the robe of his righteousness. Jesus put on a crown of thorns so that we could put on the family ring. Jesus had bare feet nailed into a cross so that we could, how does Paul say it, have feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Wow. 
He's just the greatest older brother ever. And so this church, in this table, worship team, would you come up and servers, would you come? This church in this table welcomes you to this Jesus. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who feel worthless. Listen to me. Don't look at them. Look at me. To all who are worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who have sinned and need a Savior. We welcome you in the name of Jesus. He is the adversary of his enemies. He is the justifier of the inexcusable. He is the friend of sinners. Amen. Oh, hallelujah. And today, if you haven't known him before or he's been pulling at you and you've been pushing him away, today could be the day where you're his and you enter this family. It could be, and all you have to do is bring empty hands of faith. Nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can do. All you have to do is just say, Jesus, I want what you have. I want you to be my king. That can be it. You don't have to know a bunch of doctrine. We can teach that to you later. Okay? And this could be your first communion. That's the only requirement here. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be a regular attender. You just have to believe that it's Jesus alone that can forgive all of your sins and the work that he did on the cross, shedding his blood for you. And then talk to one of these men that you're going to see gather around this table afterwards. When the, when the elements come around, we want you to know they're gluten-free. If that's an issue for you, take, make sure there's two cups. So take both cups because that little piece of bread is nested in there in the second cup. Brothers, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. We come from all different walks of life, don't we? all different kinds of experiences, vocations that we've been called into, ups and downs, ins and outs. But here we are today by the providence and hand and plan of God in this moment, right now. Look, look at each other. We're, this is your family. These are your people. We're in this together. This table is... Such a beautiful reminder of what Jesus did. And this room is the beautiful reminder of what Jesus did. He died to purchase for himself a bride. <laughs> and you are that bride. And he said to celebrate this table so that we wouldn't forget these things. Family. Because we're a family. That we wouldn't forget it's why he gave this meal to his dear friends and his brothers. And as they were eating, he took the bread. And after blessing it, broke it. And he gave it to his friends and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. It, it represents my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. For my sin and your sin. And then he entered into a fast and he said he's not going to drink it again until he comes back. And what's going to happen when he comes back, family? A party. (gasps) So what is this about? The forgiveness of sin and your ticket into a party. Right? Like, and he's fasting of that until we get to see each other face to face. What a savior. We do this in remembrance of him for what he did and what he's going to do. Amen.